Faustus closed his eyes in shame. All the events of the day, which had been so nightmarish and unreal, were terribly, terribly true. The mark beside the king's mouth unmistakable and incontrovertible, every knuckle of Costas's fist indelibly represented there. Eugenides said, You did swear less than two months ago to defend myself and my throne with your life, didn't you? He'd gone down like a rag doll. Costas effed up. I'm Noelle. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Chip. And this is the Atolian Archives, your Queen's Thief reread podcast to get you through the 348 days between today and Return of the Thief. It's September 22nd, 2019. Today, we're discussing the prologue and chapter one of The King of Atolia, and let's try our best not to call this the Queen of Atolia by mistake. It's going to be hard. 21 episodes after that. We'll do our best. <laughs> How long will it take us to stop saying the Queen of Atolia? It's like writing the date every year in January. Like, you're going to get it maybe on the 31st, but it might still be March. Yeah. yeah you'll slip up again. It shouldn't be hard for me considering the last time I was here was, I think, the first episode of Queen of Atolia. Maybe. <laughs> That's why the people of Atolia don't like Jen, because now they are so used to saying the Queen's Guard, the Queen's stuff, they and now there's change a all their titles. It's just really inconvenient. Can you imagine, though, like, whenever the land changes from a king to a queen, you have to say Atolia instead of Atolis, like, you change the country name, mm-hmm. and Edith Oh, to yeah, that's... Edia, or... I mean, Nobody seems to actually do that. They're all just stubbornly refusing to yeah. change, which I get. It's sort of thematic, I think. <laughs> Maybe a character flaw of every person ever in any of these novels. <laughs> In this chapter, well, there's the prologue first, which is kind of a hodgepodge of different characters. It soft introduces Costas. Mm -hmm. And then we have the disgrace of one poor guardsman. (sighs) And Chip, I know you had brought up earlier when we were making all the notes. Why do you think uh, the queen is in the prologue instead of it just starting with everyone else? And I was kind of thinking, so it starts out saying she's waiting for her husband and in Edis the man comes to the woman in Atolia the woman goes to the man and they had chosen to keep the custom of Edis and so like the Edesians would see that as a compliment because uh, they're doing an, Edesi- an Edesian thing but the Atolians would just see it as Atolia is flouting the duties of a traditional woman whatever so like you it's, do like you do Naturally. like she keeps doing and then it says it was a careful dance of shadows and unsubstance but under it all there was a marriage of two people and then it ends that tiny paragraph on her saying that she had just yielded the sovereignty of her mm. country so i was kind of thinking it sets up the whole book in a way that like what am i trying to say like for the whole rest of the book Cost just starts on thinking and the narration says like oh they don't like each other they hate each other whatever they're not really married but I feel like this is just dropped in there as a seed of like this is how we're starting off this is the real truth like no matter how much they're trying to put smoke screens over all of it and figure out the balance of the private and the public and deny that there's that there's anything private at first and this book is coming after the book, The Queen of Atolia. Right. And so that moment is kind of a transition. It's one last thing that we get of her. And then 
this book, it's from Costas's perspective, but it is definitely a eugenides book. Yeah. This is the Gen show. Mm-hmm. Well, so you're, what you're saying is that she is less of a character in this book because I don't, I think she's almost, she's featured almost more prominently. We get a lot of her at the beginning mm-hmm. of Queen of Atolia. A lot of her. True. In those first couple chapters. True, yeah. And we start off with her again in Queen of Atolia. We start off with, or we start off with mm-hmm. Jen running and then a scene with her and the goddess. Mm-hmm. So we're 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 starting from the same point and careening towards a very different type of story. Yeah. Which I think is interesting. Yeah, it's giving you one last little taste mm-hmm. of that safety of yeah. I know what this book is. If I'm not mistaken, this is the only paragraph or part of this book that we have from her perspective. Yeah, and that's the narrative all. style of the Queen of Atolia, mm-hmm. those switching uh semi-omniscient points of view. Right. So in this prologue, we get uh, paragraphs on Atolia, Ornon, Costas and Teleus together, and then Relius. And I actually wanted to talk about Ornon for a minute. He's so petty. Yes. <laughs> what a jerk. Is he being a jerk, though? Because, I mean, if you want to talk pettiness, I think Eugenides <laughs> is probably going to take take the prize on that one. Are, is He's it just... really a jerk if he deserves it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, you know. It's like... hard not to sympathize. Like, you know? imagine you're, like, 45, and you've got this... Because that's how <laughs> yeah. I picture him, right? Like, he's... This is a middle-aged, savvy political player who's been doing this for a long time, and Jen has no idea what he's doing, and he's so annoying. Yeah. It's got to feel good, and I have to... I understand that. I can see it. <laughs> I wanted to to bring him up because I was just thinking it's interesting that he's here in the prologue that's meant to introduce the major players. Like, reflecting on how much time he has in the rest of the book, I wouldn't even necessarily call him one of the major players. Like, he mm. he shows up every now and again. But is he there to, like, represent the Edesian perspective? That would make sense. But I that was, is important in general. Definitely. But I was also kind of thinking, you know, before Thick as Thieves came out and we had any idea of what that was going to be about... I thought it was weird that Kamet had so much page time. And then the yeah. entire book was about Kamet. And now that we know Ornon has gone to the Medes as an ambassador, Ooh. this is actually making me think his inclusion in King of Atolia so early, and then also he's just kind of peppered in there. I think he's going to be really important in Return of the Thief. Now That's what this is making me think. Putting things on the corkboard and yeah. connecting them with string. <laughs> So, I like it. Yeah, I, I will you be, might be right. very interested to see. In terms of characters being named in this prologue, though, uh, Costas is named only at the end of his small section, right? Mm-hmm. And then we go right into Relius, who also will not be a factor until about midway through the book, um, which is interesting. It, it starts them off almost on equal footing. Yeah. And then presents a very a narrative disparity on who's going to get more page time versus whose actions are more consequential, right? Mm, yeah, who is the narrator versus not. Mm-hmm. I think Relius's little paragraph is really interesting because mm-hmm. he's thinking about how he, more than anyone, has a lot to fear from Eugenides and this new power that Eugenides has. Yeah. And it's because 
he hurt him so much. Yeah. Cut Which off the, the boy's reader, hand. Cut off the boy's hand. The reader doesn't know that at this point. He right. Wasn't, he was, Relius wasn't even the one who cut off the hand. Relius was the one who tortured him. Yeah, we don't know we about don't the additional torture at this point. Mm-hmm. And so he thinks that, obviously, Eugenides is going to come and want revenge on mm-hmm. me personally for this. But he also thinks that Jen will be easy to control. And right. so he's putting Jen's... Like, he's putting Jen's motivations into this box of it will all be about personal revenge. Mm -hmm. And Jen, as a political actor, is not really a concern. Right. When obviously we know that it's kind of the opposite of that. Jen does a great deal of personal forgiving Mm -hmm. in uh, this book and uh, doles out a lot of political vengeance. Yeah. Uh, should we talk about cruelty a little bit? Go uh, for it. <laughs> because, uh, and I'm jumping a little past the prologue here, this is going to be a book where we see Jen be cruel in ways that I don't think we have before. Uh, he's going to treat people cruelly. You're narrowing your eyes. Do you? I know. I'm just, I'm puzzled. Like, which? I Well, his treatment of, and I'm going to embarrass myself because I've forgotten his name. Um, there are a lot of characters. There are so many so characters. Many there are a lot of lot of people in this court. Many. Um, uh, his his treatment of the two brothers mm-hmm. uh, towards the end of this book are is objectively cruel. He he manipulates one to get back at the other because he needs him out of the way for political reasons. He uses political motivation to treat people cruelly. And that's, but that's framed as being an inherent part of kingship. Like when he's becoming king, one of the reasons that he's so afraid of it is because he thinks I will have to kill people. I'll have to hurt people. Mm. When I think of cruelty, I think of uh, like inflicting suffering on purpose because you, you delight in it. But I would differentiate that from political actions, maybe. But I mean, well, maybe we shouldn't be doing that. Maybe, you know, are you saying that acts are inherently cruel or not cruel? Which well, would big, totally make that's sense. That's a big question here is yeah. to what extent can we, the reader, accept the justification exactly. of that political violence? And Jen struggles with that all the time, as you were just saying. But of course, Costas is expecting violence right. and eye for an eye justice. Mm-hmm. And instead... Uh, he gets mercy and does not know what to do with it. He that. gets a lot of wine. <laughs> Which, obviously, there's an ulterior motive yeah. to yeah. the wine. <laughs> it's But it feels like him attempting to circumvent unnecessary cruelty. Like, on your first day as king. Like, day one on the job. It's right? my first day! It's oh, your, boy. oh, boy, it's your first day. and Your mom's going to take a little picture of you. Exactly. And back then back. the schoolyard bully, who, by the way, is uh, just a lot bigger than you is going to come along and punch you in the face, and then you have to have him executed. Now, we all had this experience on the first day of kindergarten. (laughs) But what I'm saying is that it's a political necessity that you don't let him get away with that, and yet Jen's first instinct is to attempt to circumvent it, and he finds a political reason to do it, as we will find out later. If you want to convince Talaeus of his his kingship, you have to convince Convince the the man man next to him. And he finds this reason, but it does, it feels like throughout this novel, Jen will grasp at more and more straws in an attempt to circumnavigate cruelty Mm -hmm. and will eventually find that 
he can't. And as it turns yeah. out, his his manipulation of the two brothers later in the book was pre-planned and thought out and carefully executed. But I think it's cruel it's the way he treats them. It's revenge. <laughs> um, it's cruel and it's cruel for political reasons. And I think that that is a turning point in the book and in his character. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's forced to differentiate between people he's willing to enact that kind of cruelty on and people that he's not. Like, Costas just comes into his circle of exceptions, mm-hmm. but he can't he can't bring everybody into that circle. So we get a lot of exposition about Costas in this chapter. We learn that he is from Ortia in the Gied Valley above Pomia, which has no relevance for us. Because oh, yes, those I things go there all the time. Not on the map. Lovely country, especially in the fall. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I read that and I thought, like, oh, where have I read the word Pomia recently? And in the short story at the back of the new edition of King of Atolia, which is a wine shop, Tilaeus goes into a wine shop and tells the king, uh, you can't be out with no guards, come back. He gets a coin from the king and says to Relaeus, I don't know what to do with this. Is this my severance pay? Should I go back to Pomia now? So he's from the same place as Costas. That's interesting. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, so I'm wondering, is that how Costas got like recruited? Well, that raises a question for me. Mm-hmm. Because we've talked about Costas being part of a plan to convince the man next to Tilaeus. Mm-hmm. When did that plan start? Because he he so Jen would know where Tilaeus comes from. He is he has knowledge of all the main oh, political players. Right. Would this, yeah. would, would this was that the spark? If Costas did not punch Jen, in the is face? that why he picked Costas? Maybe. Or I think because they're from the same place. Well, yeah. My question is: Does Jen go to this room with this plan, mm-hmm. or does he go to the room? Just to talk, just to try to understand and hear where are you from? Oh, Ah, the Gee Valley and the plan forms then. uh, I was kind of thinking he had planned this whole elaborate thing before Costas even punched him. But he does seem like he genuinely wants to know why Costas hit him. Definitely. Well, he's, you know, he's (laughs) he manipulated so action right he's he's talking very loudly about how bad a job the guards did which is why yeah costas punched him and mm-hmm. why even though costas won't admit it why he punched him obviously he wanted to motivate some kind of act he wanted someone to speak truthfully to him i think at the very least mm-hmm. and costas's truth was punching him in the face <laughs> jen really admires honesty mm-hmm. because he is not honest himself and i think that's uh one of the reasons why he has such a connection with Costas, and also uh, something that he admires in Irene, because even though Irene is behind a mask, absolutely, like, everything that she does is, uh, she's certainly straightforward. That's, it's a quality that he doesn't have that he admires in other people. Hey, Noelle. Hey, Caitlin. Can we talk about a pretty boy? Yeah. A very pretty boy. He's a boy. very pretty An boy. awesomely beautiful boy. You might even say Legaris the awesomely beautiful. Legaris? Legaris? Leg? I like Legaris. Leg boy. I leg like boy. Legaris. He's leggy. He's leggy and he's beautiful. <laughs> he's awesomely beautiful. Beautiful legs. He looks real good in that armor with the uh, the bare legs and the big, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The leather skirts. Mm-hmm. The greaves. The kilts. <laughs> All the other guards are just watching him go by. And how could you not? Ugh, and in addition, in addition to a pretty face, Legarus was born to a landowning family, as Aristogiton was not. 
Legarus would never rise to squad leader no matter how elevated his family, and this occasionally caused tension in Aristogiton's squad. I was saying Aristogiton. <laughs> I was also saying Aristogiton. Um, <laughs> ah, two against one. <laughs> so there's all this tension between landowning families, non-landowning families. Yeah. We see this in theory in Queen of Atolia, like we hear about how much friction it's caused to put low people higher up in the army. We hear mm-hmm. about that from an outside perspective, but now we see the actual soldiers. We see it from an inside perspective in this book. Like, it used to be that you could just coast mm-hmm. on having land, but now somebody who uh, has no land can rise above somebody with land, and so it's a very wild time yeah. in Atolia. It's interesting to see what it's done to the class barriers, because we see in chapter one that Costas's family is Pachinoy, which is landowning, but Aris's family, Aris, you know, that guy, his family is Oakloy, which is no land. So uh, the king is surprised that they're friends, or just asks, like, but you were friends. And Costas says yes. But the point is made that Sejanus. is a nice boy. I know. Sejanus would never drink, the king's attendant would never drink with someone who does not have land. So it's interesting to see that some are willing to change the traditions of their their class, but... While we're duking it out over pronunciation, Sejanus? Sejanus. Sejanus. What? Oh, none of us agree. <laughs> I think I usually just tend to go straight up for pronouncing, stressing the first syllable and... Screw all the other ones. That's the one I stick with. His name is Sejanus. <laughs> we love dactyls. We love dactyls. Uh, so we talked about a pretty boy. Can we talk about a sneaky boy? Always. We love a sneaky boy here on this podcast. Here on this podcast. I mean, there's going to be so much in this book about the assumptions that people are making about eugenities. She's laying it on very thick right out the gate here. Jen says, was punching me in the face some sort of Atolian ritual I didn't know about? Was I supposed to have defended myself? And Costas thinks he couldn't have defended himself against a man who was taller and stronger. And then he thinks a whole man. This poor man has only a knife for a hand. How, <laughs> how could he possibly defend himself against an attacker? All he has is a knife instead of a hand. Permanently attached. They can't, like, you, it's, it's right there. You can see it. It's a weapon. But no, they're like, he's, he's unwhole and therefore can't do anything. If you can't put butter on bread, you can't kill a man. Them's the rules. Sorry. <laughs> it's a it's a hierarchy of activities. What happens in the next chapter? Uh the queen arrives. Oh right, yeah. yeah. Oh shit at gets the real. very end of the chapter, the queen arrives. And uh Costas had sort of half-heartedly mm-hmm. knelt for Jen, but he oh man, he drops full on genuflects. Mm-hmm. She's been out hunting, which is which an interesting, yeah. that's an interesting image, right? I thought it was so interesting that she goes hunting specifically because there were at least two, maybe three separate mentions of how jealous she, in Queen of Atolia, of how jealous she used to be of Edis in childhood because Edis got to go on the hunts. But yeah. now she gets to go on a hunt. And and probably knows how to, how to do it. Yeah, so. She must be able to ride. She must mm-hmm. be able to, um 
to shoot. I don't know exactly yeah. how they hunt in this world. Probably with the technology that they have. Bows they and have dogs. Go- you've got to imagine she's riding with guns, right? Their guns are inaccurate, though. Yeah, but she loves guns. She does love her guns. <laughs> she just loves some guns. <laughs> is is Atolia secretly jacked, speaking of guns? <laughs> like, is she doing pull-ups alone in her chamber? She's got to know how to defend herself against an assassin. You think well, a queen has done all that? Doesn't know how to kill people. I feel like she, would, I feel like she would exercise uh, like with in rage. secret. You know, <laughs> yes. I maybe hallucinating something. Don't they both sleep with knives under their they pillows? Do. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So she has. It's yeah, canon. they're both definitely ready to defend themselves. <laughs> Two knives under the pillow, one on the hand. We're good. All right. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what love is. It's <laughs> matching knives. It's matching knives under your pillows. All right. So maybe she learned how to hunt. Once she could call the shots and she was queen, if she didn't learn it in childhood. Who knows? Yo, I got to talk about it again. This is a very unhealthy relationship. (laughs) Yes. Which, and I'm so deeply, deeply invested in it. Oh, yes. And it's a very codependent, Mm -hmm. hand cut (laughs) offy relationship. Yeah, that's a red flag. There, there are several red flags. I don't, the, I, you know, obviously, yeah, you want to be together after you're married. You also have to pretend not to be. You're throwing ink pots at each other, but you can't leave. You're sleeping in different bedrooms just for show. Making out in front of the entire court sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> but still denying you're sleeping together, potentially until you get pregnant. Who knows? Yeah, what's the plan there? Like, I've been thinking that too. Well, you know, what is their end game? If she had gotten pregnant before people realized they were sharing rooms, oh, in letting, what would have been up with that? In letting people think that they're not having sex? Yeah. Right. Well, it's part of it's part of Jen's plan, right? Yeah. I mean, Jen's plan I, is, is it? Jen's plan is temporary. Like yeah. his whole persona of uh I'm a bumbling fool has an end date. Yeah. yeah. Sure. It's when he deals with Baron Arandites. Arandites. Well done. But I thought the plan was just Sorry, I meant to say, but I thought the room, the separate rooms was just about him being homesick. It wasn't about, you know, letting Costas in on his life. But now that I'm saying that, of course it was about letting Costas in on his life. Of course he has two motives. Yeah. That does make sense. All right. Do you... Sorry. One hand, two motives. Oh, God. One one hand, two motives, one knife. That's chapter one and the prologue. Next week, the queen arrives. Send us your comments, questions, and thoughts. Chime in at atolianarchives.tumblr.com. Be blessed in your endeavors. Thank you for listening. This has been an amateur embroidery production. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, anywhere podcasts are available. 